0: Hey guys, what's up? It is week 304. I have a handful of reviews for you. I'm also starting a new kind of segment. Uh, I'll, I'll let you guys know what's going on when I get there. But uh, first up is from SRS Films, and I think this had a small release uh, last year, 100 limited copies. and I'm sure it's probably screened at some small places, but I think this is kind of the wide release of it, and this is Night of the Zodiac, and this is a modern-day SOV kind of throwback deal, obviously, but uh, you know what? A lot of those, they, they're really hit and miss, most of the time miss on the throwback SOV stuffs. This one really had a lot of charm to it, and it was pretty clever. And it was the biggest love letter I've ever seen to SOV. It's kind of funny, you know, because a lot of the SOV movies made back in the day were like made for the video market, or they were just made because budget constraints and made really weird stuff like, you know, the Eric Stanzi early stuff or Sh- Shattered Dead or the Gore trilogy. A lot of them were there to make money, though, too, like Boarding House and Blood Cult. But uh, now we're starting to get like this, this renaissance of SOV so although we've had those throughout the years. But of course, these love letters to these movies, people that grew up with the Plonia Brothers... And, ...and, you know, Woodchipper Massacre, now they're out there making movies... ...and they're making these love letters to them, and that's exactly what Night of the Zodiac is. So essentially what we have here is this aspiring filmmaker... ...and um, he becomes obsessed with the Zodiac case. He runs out this book from the library and then he gets this message from uh, basically an anonymous phone call this is I'm the Zodiac Killer I'm still alive um, I want you basically to continue on my murders and they start to have his correspondence you really don't know how on the level this guy of guy is it, the movie's very goofy and very silly and has a lot of over the top characters including the landlord who's like guzzling beer or basically his roommate uh, who's guzzling beer and just being a complete dickhead metalhead kind of guy and essentially what this guy starts to do is make the ultimate like film for the Zodiac kind of what was that one? The last horror movie um, where the guy's like making the snuff film and like recording it. And he's going to put it in the video store. I believe that's what that one was called that found footage film. Very cool. So he's kind of making this like uh, this zodiac like uh, uh, film. To like, be carry on the legacy of the Zodiac Killer and become the new Zodiac Killer himself. But um, the real fun gimmick about it is um, he's obsessed with SOV and horror and all these crazy cult titles, of course. So he essentially starts to kill people um, for inspiration. Um, in the vein of these SOV movies, you'll see deaths from like Wicked Games, a Tim Ritter movie. Um, you'll see obviously Woodchipper Massacre, all this kind of stuff in there. Um, love letters to these SOV movies, which is really cute and really funny. And it's super niche. Like it's it's such a small group of people that are going to even grasp or understand this. So this is not for everybody. I do think that people watching it could understand the charm and, and like kind of see that there's a lot going on there. But to be honest, they're not going to get a lot of the reference points. I don't think that will destroy the movie experience. Experience for a lot of people but it, it definitely added something for me because at first I was like this is all right this is very typical kind of goofy sov kind of redo and then they started bringing these references and they started becoming more clever I was like this is actually pretty funny this is actually pretty good um it also reminded me like video psycho which srs put out and that's kind of an older not older but you know sov movie um actually made in the sov heyday maybe not heyday but in the 90s I believe and uh, so, so that kind of deal too, you know, making these snuff films and recording them. But uh, there, there's some comedy, of course, some over-the-top ridiculousness, self-aware humor. Um, It's gory. It's cheap gore. It's SOV cheap, uh, bottom-of-the-barrel kind of gore stuff. But there's a lot of gags and jokes to be had. Um, like I said, this is a love letter, so I think people that are obsessed with SOV or video collecting or tape collecting will get a kick out of it as well. Um, and, and I do like some of the twist in here. I also like the fact that it takes place in Detroit, not far from my house. And I know these guys are kind of this, Area the, this uh, filmmaker uh, Susanna, let me see her last name here. Uh, Susanna Kapotowski or Sk- Skazy? I, it's it's a very hard name uh, for me to say. Uh, let me let me give it another try. Kapostazy, Kapostazy, is that how we say it? So basically, they're like in the. I think they're in the Michigan or Ohio area because the 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 movie is dedicated to Video Spectrum, which was in Bowling Green, Ohio which I used to frequent myself. It was a video store in a college town in Bowling Green and they had a slew of VHSs. Now they cut all the boxes and they had them in there, but it was a place that you could rent a lot of VHSs even past, you know, the VHS rental days, but they had a lot of rare kind of unique stuff in those bins and, and through those, it was a very cool video store, you know, and it's just basically, you know, a, a dedicated or thank you to that video store, which I think is really cool. And the fact that it takes place in Detroit, I imagine these people are from my area around my area. I know that they're kind of a local regional filmmakers. So, and, Anyways, this is a lot of fun if you're into SOV movies or or you like love letters or or kind of regional charm stuff. Then check this out. I think you'll you'll enjoy it. There is some bonus features, of course, a commentary, blood cannon madness, gore score, seance, cipher dork, Tim Ritter interview, trailer, SRS trailers, and more. And there's a lot of cameos from famous kind of SOV directors as well. They're pretty small, but hey, Night of the Zodiac, entirely goofy and ridiculous, but hey, I had I had fun with it. It was a, it was a nice surprise. Okay, the next one is also from SRS Films, and this is Ed Gein, the musical? Like, I can't make this up. Uh, Yeah, this is also a newer film, and the idea of taking something like the story of Ed Gein and making it a musical is so macabre and, like, tasteless in the best kind of way, but I mean, they're making musicals about a lot of stuff, and I actually thought, you know what, this is kind of a fun idea to do. You know, Ed Gein was a mass murderer. Well double, two-time murderer. A lot of people refer to him as a serial killer or whatever. Eh, But, you know, he was a two-time murderer. Uh, Famous movies were based on Ed Gein. I just reviewed Texas Chainsaw a couple weeks back. Of course, that one, Silence of the Lambs, Um, Psycho, uh, Three on a Meat Hook, Deranged, all these kind of movies, Ed Gein. Um, So, all those movies were based on the Ed Gein case. He was, uh, like I said, from Wisconsin and the story's pretty infamous. In the 50s, I believe, he was, uh, he committed all these crimes, necrophilia, digging up graves, you making human furniture, all these kind of things and like it became a huge myth so it's perfect to make a musical right because we have some of the truth but you know print the legend not the not the truth whatever the old west said so basically what we have here is a musical version of Ed Gein and and at first I popped this in I was like the budget is really kind of holding this back because like the writing's solid some of the songs are really funny and the lead the guy playing Ed Gein he has to play like multiple versions of Ed Gein kind of like his fantasy in his fantasy fantasy in his head and stuff like that which Ed Gein had and then the actual Ed Gein. So he's basically at least playing two different versions of Ed Gein and the childhood Ed Gein. So, and I think that the lead did a good job. I think that he also, I was singing, I don't know if he's actually his voice there or not. But regardless, he was, he did very well for what he had, you know, all the stuff he had to do and on a budget. You know, he he kind of shined through and was the best actor in the movie as he should be. You know, he's the, he's the titular character. Some of the side actors, they felt like they're line reading, they didn't seem or line singing, whatever you want to call it. But then at the end of the day, you're thinking, this is a low-budget musical. You don't even know if to record sound on set. And a lot of these people, it's an awkward kind of way to do acting is in a musical, low-budget movie about Ed Gein. It's a lot. It's a lot to ask for. It's a lot to do. And the tone is going to be a little hard to grasp. You know, do you play it certain silliness? Do you play it more straight? Whatever. You know, you got to find your range. And I think some of the people acting in this couldn't find their range. I do think the second half, I think most of the acting improved. I think Ed Gein's the guy playing Ed Gein was, was good throughout the entire movie. Like I said, he has a lot to do. The music's obviously takes on lots of popular musicals. We have Annie, which I thought was really funny at the end. We have other you know, I think there's a Wizard of Oz song in there too. All the kind of stuff come with me and you will see, of course Willy Wonka. It's almost like every musical you know, every song that's stuck in your head now it's done in the Ed Gein style with different lyrics and everything like that. So we go over the, you know, Ed Gein uh, committing these couple crimes, getting caught by the police being in the interrogation and we get in his fantasy world and his childhood and stuff and you know I say the second half. After you give, give this movie at least twenty minutes before you. If you're not digging it, I think after the twenty minute mark, you're like, I kind of get this. I kind of in this movie now. And the idea, how ambitious, ambitious it is for you know the budget and everything like that. I, I kind of got to take my hat off to him because at first I was like, I don't know, man. This is this is really rough around the edges. But when it comes down to it, what makes it rough around the edges is basically the budget. And, like, it's very ambitious. Like, I think with a bigger budget, this would have clearly been better. You know, better effects, better, you know, side characters or dialogue or just time to do it. It's really just the budget that's holding this thing back because the idea is really fucking funny. And there's really good moments in here, too. Um, And I liked it. For Overall, I thought it was pretty cool and pretty good. And the idea is, is macabre shit. And, you know, I think Ed Gein is one of the, the, the mass murders or serial killers or murderers or true crime stories you could make a musical of. I know that sounds morbid, but he's the one. You know, because he's such a legacy, he's almost a legend, of course, unfortunately. But we have a commentary, Blood Cannon Madness, uh, and it seems like they accidentally put the same bonus features on the bottom here as they did for the other one. Now, I do know there is a commentary on here. So that's the only special feature I noticed is a commentary by the director and everything like that. And I think this is the only movie that he actually did. But anyways, I would recommend checking this out if you're in the musicals, if you're in the Ed Gein, if you're in the low-budget, kind of ambitious, cheap cinema. You'll dig Ed Gein the musical. Just the idea that there's a movie called Ed Gein the musical that exists kind of brings a smile to my face. Okay, we're going to do another one from the Lucas uh, Moodison uh, collection. We're only doing one this time around, and this is uh, Lilia Forever. Um, let me pull this out here. Like I said, this is a massive box set, and I can't tackle it all or it would be a whole week of this. And I like to mix it up, kind of switch everything up. Let me get this out here. So this one was made in, what, 2000, I believe? And, uh, yeah, this one was really interesting. I'd not heard much about it. And, like, if you look online, there actually is, like, a disturbing movie breakdown, which would suggest that this movie's pretty horrific. So I was like, oh, wow, this is something I really wasn't expecting by this director. So essentially what we have here is... This is based on a true story, and what happened in Sweden, did not know any of this until I watched some of the special features, is a young Russian girl who's about 16 years old basically gets turned into a prostitute, a call girl forced into, uh, you know, sex slave forced into this in Sweden, and she's from Russia, and um, real tragedy ensues. I don't want to spoil the entire movie, but it's basically her life. Um, While I was watching this, the stuff that happens to our lead character, Lilia is essentially the stuff that would trigger any, like, revenge film. Any, like, massive, like, epic revenge film, like I Speed On Your Grave or Thriller. Um, So she basically is left behind by her mother and her boyfriend, her mother's boyfriend. And they tell her last minute that you're not coming with us to America. You're not coming to New York. You're going to stay here. So she's 16 and her mother leaves her in a really upsetting and tragic scene. I was irate during this entire movie and depressed. So there you go. After that, um, she's told she has to move out of her apartment and her aunt does something uh, horrific. And this puts her in a life of real desperation. And she kind of turns to prostitution after she is basically um, lied about and her reputation is destroyed. She has no choice and she turns to prostitution. This kind of ruins a lot of her But, uh, of course, you know, somebody looks out for her and like without spoiling a lot of things, it's, it's pretty much as grim as it can get. The worst, all the horrible stuff that happens happens. She has one friend in the world who's this young boy who also suffers tragedy. He spends his free time sniffing glue and they like to go in a factory and just hang out. It's a really depressing, disgusting kind of look at at, like poverty in Russia and just how it is everywhere and how it just seems very cruel and very cold and, and every stereotype you could assume about Russia, Um, um, so like the director decided to make a, a feature of this movie of this true story and he seemed to like he had reservations talking about it he says it's not his favorite movie he did he doesn't really particularly care for it and it, it's kind of maybe just because it was so you know hot topic button issue that he feels maybe he was being insensitive or something along that line or just being like a, a shock pitcher and you know I think it gets its message across certain in a certain way but I also could see you know censors looking at it as something that glorifies suicide you know that was a problem with a lot of films that they felt were glorifying suicide or something like that um you know i think that i like to think that most people that are watching these kind of films know that you know can make decisions for themselves and understand these kind of things but you never know but this movie i thought was really well done i thought the performance by the lead was exceptional i thought there's a couple rape scenes in here and the way they filmed them is very disturbing very bothersome but i wouldn't say exploitative. Um, Although that it feels just like misery porn a lot of times the people say that, like, what was that Manchester by the Sea? These movies where they keep piling it on the lead character and you just actively feel sick or actively feel depressed or something happens in it where you can relate or, or resonates with you. And, and that's what happens in this movie. It has a lot of that kind of stuff going on, but it's really well made. And, the, of course, it has like a good soundtrack. You know, you hear like Ramstein and all those kind of a lot of bands and there's club music and stuff like that as well. <clears throat> As far as the special features are concerned, we have new interview with Lucas Budinson, a moderated by film programmer Sarah Lutton, new interview with costume designer Denise Olsholm, moderated by Lutton, Guardian interview with Lucas Monison, a 90-minute Q&A with director filmed at the London Film Festival in 2002. So, you know, this movie was kind of a hot topic, like a hot-button topic or whatever at the time, and I think it holds up. I think it's a really well-done film. Okay, so we're actually going to record the first part of our Top 25 of 1980 for the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror this Sunday. I'm recording this one Thursday right now. Um, So essentially what I decided to do, now we usually draw random retro years and I'll probably stick with them and do their retro years as well. But instead of just... You know, waiting and waiting and waiting. I'm just going to do 1981. Then I'm going to do 82, 83, 84, 85, and we're going to go up. And I know I already did 85. I'll do a rehash, and I'm going to make video essays for everything and talk about the year as a whole. And I'll probably, if I redo a year, I'll probably just watch a couple new ones, maybe refresh myself and do the video essay. Um, I'm going to do an intro video eventually for 81 as well, but I want to get some films under my belt. Maybe watch something I have missed, refresh my brain a little bit to see how I'm going to cut this thing together. Cause it's going to be a long, over a long period of time, but I'm doing 1981. Um, they aren't on 22 shots. I'm doing it on my own accord. I just, you know, life is short time and a lot of things are consuming and I just want to hit up certain things Then I'll go through and do the seventies and then the nineties and the sixties and I'll do everything. If I'm still alive, then I'll, I'll watch every horror movie I possibly can. That's made before 2000. And then I'll start going at the ones after 2000. But uh, 1981, we're going to do that, okay? And uh, the first one up, we're going to start with The Doozy. And this was a blind spot for me. This was probably the biggest movie from 1981 I had not seen. And I do not know why. It's right up my alley. It's perfect for me. Um, this is a VCI Blu-ray. And this is Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Again, it's a TV film. It has Larry Drake, of course, Charles Derning, Lane Smith. And uh, what is the actor's name? I have to remember his name. He's really good in this. Um, geez, what is his name? He's a heavyset guy, Claude, Claude something, Claude, uh, he's, they don't list his name on here, but he's a, he's a big actor. He's in stuff like, uh, Miracle Mile and Bride of the Reanimator. He's really great in this. So everybody kind of knows the story this one. It kind of infamous because, you know, in 81, it was a, it was a big popular TV movie and it was really good. It was really impactful. And I was just, I knew it would be good. I knew it would have been hyped up for a long time. I know Joe Rubin's a friend, uh, a fan from Vinegar Syndrome. He likes it quite a bit, and so I put it in and it did not disappoint. I absolutely love this movie. It definitely has like this regional kind of like uh small town kind of mentality about it. I mean, like characters from a small town, it has a regional feel to it. Um, and, you know, TV movies used to be excellent. Now, I know TV movies has got a bad rep, probably like the mid to late 90s. They just started really falling downhill, maybe even the early 90s or late 80s. I mean, but stuff like Midnight Hours, 85, that's a good TV film. This one's exceptional, and there's a lot from the 70s. Don't be afraid of the dark, all sorts of things from the 70s. But this movie, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, I was just so impressed with it. Now, Larry Drake uh, plays this slow mentally handicapped character. I think, you know... The Ernest Ernest, Jim Varney or something kind of like that, but a more serious character that hangs around little kids, or even like the guy from Critters, who's like an alcoholic that hangs around little kids. There's that weird kind of thing where in, in movies before a certain time, mentally handicapped grown men or or slow guys would hang out with kids in movies, and no one would question it. Nowadays, no, they question it in this one, but nowadays it wouldn't even fly in a film. You know, it's just kind of like a no, we don't do that anymore kind of deal. Kind of also like the the drunk-driving grandfather or the peeping Tom uncle. They're just not in movies anymore. Those, that's just a group of peak characters that they kind of just like, well, we don't want to, that's a little much. Isn't it? So essentially, Larry Drake is a completely harmless, very sweet-natured slow guy that has a friend in this young girl in this small town. And Charles Durning, who is a mailman, who never changes out of his work outfit the entire movie. In fact, all the villains never do. They just kind of reflect the jobs and they reflect that small time kind of just always in their outfits. That's a big chunk of who they are. Um, Because there's not much going on up here in a lot of them. So uh, they all are very well realized characters and they're self-aware of what's happening and everything like that. And and they just have nuances that are perfect. They're all great character actors, too. So, I mean, they're perfect in this. So essentially what happens is Charles Durning is very upset with Larry Drake hanging out with this girl. He keeps making, you know, uh, saying things like, you know, she's going to get hurt one day. You know, kind of planting that seed that, you know, Larry Drake is a pervert or something like that. So, essentially what happens is, one day, this poor girl's is hurt um, by a dog, and Larry Drake brushed through the fence, and, and we see her covered in blood, and we think she's dead. Um, now, Larry Drake's saying he didn't do it. Um, come to find out, he runs away because he's scared of everything, and he hides in the scarecrow in the field. Now, these good old boys, uh, the sheriff's looking around and everything like that, the good old boys, the four of them. There's four of them. They're all character actors. You recognize Charles Durning and Lane Smith and the, the guy I mentioned. And another guy who's in a couple of Bronson movies. So um, these four guys are looking for him. And, and the ringleader is Charles Durning kind of bullying them to do this. And they find him. And and they kill him. And they kill him in cold blood. And uh, he's in the scarecrow you know uh, outfit hiding there. And the dog points him out. And right when they get over the call, they realize that they, the girl isn't dead. And a do- it was a dog attack. And poor Bubba actually saved her life. So there's a whole court case and everything, and they get off scot-free. Uh, Bubba's mother's not happy. The little girl never finds out until later, but when she does find out, strange things start to happen pretty quickly. Uh, you know, these guys are are seeing the scarecrow in their field, and it's out of planting season. It's got a beautiful kind of like Halloween kind of October feel as well. It's brilliant. So basically, you see Bubba. You think it's Bubba, possibly in the scarecrow outfit, scarecrow in the field. Who's putting it there? And it starts freaking these guys out and they start to kind of like turn on each other a little bit. Think I spit on your grave, right? When like those four kind of good old boys start to be panicked a little bit. And they are kind of start f- inner fighting That kind of happens here, too. And it does have a feel like that, too, with Ice Speed on Your Grave. Not as explicit or anything. Of course not. But over time, the group starts to getting picked off. And unlike a typical slasher, it seems to only, almost be a telekinetic kind of attack. And it, which makes it really unique. And it reminds me of other things. Like, I don't want to spoil. If I tell you what it's like, it'll spoil it. But, so, spoiler, just quick. It reminds me of stuff like Kiss Daddy Goodbye. Or The Child from 1977. Kind of in that vein, but just better done than both those movies. I think Kiss Daddy Goodbye might be this year, too. I'll revisit that one. It's been years. But uh, so so it's just perfect. And the acting is great. And uh, they start to like, like these things about Charles Durning. And they set up how all these people are going to bite it. They set up the foreshadowing perfect. And it's just a great movie. It's just really good and really creepy and really just excellent. It's... it's it, it I'd be surprised if it didn't make my top ten, and that would be a first time watch. And all these other movies that I from eight nineteen eighty one that I love, I've seen a dozen times. And, and you know, this movie was spectacular. Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Uh the best Scarecrow, killer scarecrow movie ever. But I mean Scarecrows from eighty eight, eighty seven is great too. And I even like Night of the Scarecrow by Jeff Jeff uh uh, Burr. Jeff Burr did that one in 95. That's a good one, too. And, I, you know, I kind of avoided, you know, Scarecrow Slayer and shit like that. I never watched those. But this one has quite a decent amount of features on here. And the Blu-ray looked really good. You know, a lot of people bag on VCI, but this is a full-screen TV movie. It looked really solid. New production do- documentary. New Q&A with Larry Drake, Tanya Crow, and J.D. Fieldson. New rebroadcast promo. New behind-the-scenes photo gallery. Director and writer commentary. CBS Network world premiere promo. English and Spanish subtitles. Highly recommended it is region all i recommend you guys pick this one up asap it is back in print it was out of print for a while but dark knight of the scarecrow a true gem from 1981 okay the next up is kind of another one that i hadn't seen in a long time that people love and this is a slasher some people call it a a american giallo even though it's kind of canadian movie and this is happy birthday to me and this is directed by Jay Lee Thompson. You know Jay Lee Thompson, you know he directed some big movies like uh Guns of Navarone and a lot of other ones. I think and but then he kind of like had like a journeyman I, th- I don't want to call him a journeyman because his movies are really good, but he's a director that worked most with Bronson. I believe he directed Ten to Midnight, more than Michael Winter. He worked with Bronson more than Michael Winter. He directed Death, Death Wish 4. He did a lot of flicks, you know what I mean? He was the guy who came in after uh you know um, Bronson was pissed about Death Wish 3 and he directed Death Wish 4. But Jay Lee Thompson did a lot of big movies too. And and he was always solid. All his movies are really, really just like solid movies. And Happy Birthday to me is no different. Now, I saw this years ago, probably when I was 12 or 13 years old. I caught this and probably watched it maybe once or twice over the, over the 20 years or so since then, 25 years. But uh, you know what? I really enjoyed rewatching this and you know the year of the slasher 1981 even Dark Knight of the Scarecrow has slasher elements it's kind of a slasher right it's pick them off and Happy Birthday to Me is also kind of a slasher movie although some people say giallo style Glenn Ford is in this fucking thing Melissa Sue Anderson um, she's like an actress I'm not super familiar with you know a couple of these people will do a couple genre films and never touch the genre again or they'll do TV sometimes like they don't really stand out to me Glenn Ford the year before he was in the uh, virus movie the Japanese kind of American co-production about the end of the kind of world which is a pretty cool movie a virus deal um also matt craven is in here character actor you guys would recognize him i think he has a role in uh jacob's ladder if i'm not mistaken but this is the Kino re-release and i think this uh this one obviously looks pretty solid i know there was a um indicator release and then there was a uh, mill creek double feature with uh, uh when a stranger calls but i'm pretty sure this being on its own disc is, is better quality and it has a nice slip cover original cover out right here uh i love the six of the most bizarre murders you'll ever see so basically this follows the story of like the 10 the 10 from this school this college, and they're all basically from the, like, elite family, and they're all random kind of characters. Some of them really don't feel like they're kind of mismatched characters. You have, like, the foreign exchange student who's, like, kind of really, like, flirtatious in a disgusting kind of way, basically really rapey, and he, like, drives a dirt bike, you have the nerdy guy, you have, like, the jock, a kind of workout kind of guy, you have the practical joker, you have the nice girl, and, and all this kind of stuff, and then, you have know, like, the main girl as well, and the main girl is rather new, and she just kind of got put in with these kids, but right in the first like 15 minutes, somebody's murdered in the movie, like, and it's a pretty good death scene at Throat Slitting, and I don't remember this movie being as bloody as it was, but it was much more gory and bloodier than I thought it would be, you know, I thought this was like Jay Lee Thompson, I mean, he's no stranger to violence and action and stuff like that, but I was like this will probably be a little bit more tame than a Friday 13th, or a burning or something and it, it probably is more tame than the burning but as, as far as we're going, it, it has more blood than I thought, um, especially when it ha- happens to poor old fucking Glenn Ford, um, spoilers here There's it's bludgeon, a lot of blood uh, he's doctor and also uh, Lauren Stain is an aggravated Lauren Stain character actor from Canada. He's in stuff like Dark Man 2 and Rituals and Scanners from 81 as well. So it's got a nice little cast here. So essentially, Melissa Sue Anderson has some mental problems. And as the film progresses, we kind of lean more into what happened to her brain surgery, loss of a mother, all these kind of typical things you would see. um And, and as it goes on, they, they kind of have tons of red herrings. There's a lot of red herrings in this movie. And they leave, like, something will happen, and then they'll just, like, cut away for a while, and they won't let you know what happened for a long period of time, kind of letting you, like, sit on it. Like, what happened? But you know what? As far as, like, the musical score is good, the uh, the choice of songs is great, especially the very end. This end reveal is very, like, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre style, everybody around the table, or even a Friday the 13th when you find the, the room full of bodies, you know? So I'm saying, like, it has these elements of other horror films and other slashers and stuff like that, or proto-slashers that are in there. But this one I thought was really solid, really entertaining, and the kills are great. You know, I mean, a shish kebab kill, how can you beat that? Uh, There's a throat slit, there's, uh, you know, somebody getting killed with their dirt bike, all sorts of cool stuff, a weight murder. So this is one of these movies where they were like, how can we kill people in crazy ass ways? It was one of those deals, and they, they do a good job. Now, it does run a little on the long side, but you know what? It didn't bother me. Didn't bother me, didn't seem long. Um, so, so i really enjoyed it uh there's an audio commentary by co-writer timothy bond moderated by historian filmmaker daniel creamer and then sister slasher interview with actress tracy e bragman and now she uh has a pretty good role in here and they threw something at her halfway through the movie where, or making the movie it's like you're gonna be this character which is pretty cool but anyways nice keno release a happy birthday to me from 1981 okay the next one up is another one from 1981, of course. I kind of went 1981 crazy. I was in the mood. Uh, There's a lot of ones I haven't watched in a long time or a couple first-time watches. And this is by Romano Sc- Scal- Velvini, or He's an Italian director. Nightmares, or a.k.a. Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, a.k.a. Blood Splash, if not my mistake. And I think I might have had a VHS of Blood Splash, or right? I've seen it a bunch of times. I talked about Video Spectrum earlier. They definitely had a copy of Blood Splash. I remember seeing that cover for sure. So, Essentially, this one made the video nasties list. I should mention that Happy Birthday to Me made the Section 3 list. This one was on one or two. So Nightmare, or Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, has always kind of been a movie that was kind of hard to get when I was really young. So it had like this cult following, this kind of, um, when I was like 12 or 13, I was like, I gotta see Nightmares in a Damaged Brain. And most of the time it was called Nightmares. Kind of like how Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, was usually called Night Warning. I think that those titles, Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, they are obviously old AK names for that. And and Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, were so off the wall or memorable that people just forced those titles to become the main titles. Because when people reference them, there's like 12 movies called Nightmares. There's one from 1980 called Nightmares. Then we have one from 1981. Then we have one from 1983. It's a lot of fucking nightmares. God knows I have my own. But uh, anyways, Nightmares in a Damaged Brain. So this follows this guy um played by what is the name bard strive or something like that let me get over the controversy too tom savini supposedly did not do any effects on this he was a core a special effects like uh basically uh a, not a coordinator or whatever uh advisor on the movie and there's a picture with him talking to helping people but they credited him doing the effects and he got really pissed off that's kind of one of these movies called the fame kind of deals besides being on the video nasty's list but essentially what we have here is half the movie is maniac a lot of kind of seedy streets of this character walking around when they get released from, I think it's, I think it is uh New York and they're walking around the streets and peep shows they get released They're supposedly cured. We see some of their nightmare visions, um, what they have, including, uh, a, a decapitation and gore and glimpses. And throughout the movie, we get more and more of that until the final reveal at the very end. And we see why this character is the way he is, how he, he sees sex and all these kind of messed up things that he has in his brain. So, um, the first part of this movie is him kind of walking around the seedy streets of New York going in a strip booth and peep booth, and you see all the marquees in the background of different movies and stuff. And that's all pretty cool stuff, you know what I mean? And, like, you get that slice of sleaze from the 81, you know, very similar to Maniac or Basket Case, or you know, those kind of movies that take place. Or Miss 45 that are just gritty, nasty city sleaze. Um, and even like any Jimmy Glickenhouse produced movie or, or Shapiro-produced movie directed by Jimmy Glickenhaus, any of those fucking movies, Exterminator, they all have that element of that, that big city sleaze, which I love, and Nightmare's got it, so basically this character carries out a brutal murder when he starts to travel across country and you can tell that he, he's getting off on it, and, and, and it's just really, the murders um, and the violence, it kind of like, sits in it it sits in it, and it plays it a long time, and it's definitely reveling in it, you know, or getting the message across that this shit's nasty and, and they do that, and they're always like a sexual thing for this character to carry out these murders right? And we kind of find out that this character is traveling to Florida, which is strange. Like, what movie starts in New York and ends in Florida, you know? But that's what we have here. So we kind of change the climates. And we're, we're introduced to a family, um, a single mother who's trying to date. She has three kids. And one of the kids is a troublemaker. What's his name? CJ? He's your typical kind of like uh, troublemaking kid, but he's also kind of like a monster-inspired kid. He's playing practical jokes. You guys seen Friday 13th Part 4. This is before it. You've seen the deadly spawn, who like the monster kid, Neon Maniacs. That's kind of a thing in a lot of these movies where you have the monster kid. Um, grew up watching reading Famous Monsters or something. Anyways, this kid's more of a practical joker than a monster kid, but he does have these elements of scaring people. He loves to scare people. All the babysitters hate him, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, whatever. So a lot of the movie after that point when we get to Florida kind of slows down a little bit. But there is that moment when we have that initial murder, and they, they love to do this in a movie, where the character is standing here, and they bend down to get something, and boom, he's behind them. The killer's behind them, ready to carry out a murder. They do that in Tenebrae as well, which is, is done better. It's a Dario film with more money. But uh, it, it is effective. They do it twice here. So, like, there's a couple murders that are off screen here, but the aftermath is really powerful because one involves a kid. And that whole idea is really messed up. And I really like how they, they, they call in the kid CJ. It's his friend who's murdered. And they're like, what happened, CJ? What happened? It has a weird naturalistic quality to it. And it's just kind of bothersome. But at the very end, there's a big kind of Halloween style, you know, uh, home invasion where the killer's mask and everything. It just essentially turns into Halloween, but just more gore, I guess, and more shots. And we kind of are cutting back to between like his, like, his like childhood trauma and everything. But there's some really gnarly scenes in here, like the head waking up on the bed, you know, the severed head and him kind of just like foaming at the mouth and having these seizures. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of this element. And there's of course like a group of people looking for him, which doesn't really go anywhere, but we kind of just have to have them. there doing it. But nightmares and a damaged brain is one that always stuck out with me just because it's got like a real mean streak. It's got a real gritty nastiness to it. Now, a lot of people don't like the print from 88 films, but I believe it's uncut it's the uncut print i think this code red blu-ray was a better looking print by most people but it was missing a second or something like that a few seconds of footage or anything the massacre video is supposed to release nightmares in a damaged brain a while back i don't know if it did happen or not i know i know it didn't happen but i don't know when it is happening right so um i know it hasn't been re-released but there's plans supposedly i don't know Uh, Hopefully we get it soon because I'd like to see another release of this one uh, as a video nasty. And I do like this film. It it, it is one that I've had a special connection to probably because it was on the bootleg circuits for so long and it was so sought after. And when I finally saw it, I kind of liked it. And I always watched it a few times. This maybe, I don't know. I just always kind of enjoyed this one. Um, So we have a brand new 2K scanner restoration. Terran Times Square. Guide to New York's Grindhouse Kingdom. And that has like uh, Tommy Timpone from Fangoria. And Michael Gingold from editor of Fangoria. Audio commentary by associate producer Bill Paul. Interview with Tom Ward. CEO of 21st Films. And original trailer. 88 Films trailer and kind of uh, um, reversible cover so yeah this is from their slasher collection and i would probably say this is a slasher especially the second half is definitely a slasher so um yeah uh the kill count's not super high but there is a couple of people probably five or six uh yeah maybe seven i think there's seven including the flashback which we see a hundred times in gory detail and it keeps getting longer and longer every single time you see it so nightmares in a damaged brain 1981 okay this time, I got a bona fide classic from 1981. This is a Vinegar Syndrome release. One of their early, early releases, too. And this is everyone's favorite slasher. Hands down, don't go in the woods alone. A.K.A. Don't Go in the Woods Alone, Don't Go in the Woods, whatever you want to call it. Not to be confused with the one that came out in 2012. This is the original Don't Go in the Woods, directed by, what's was the director's name? James Bryant. Uh, James Bryant. And he did a couple weird movies. He did, what, the Lady Street Fighter? Not Sister Street Fighter, Lady Street Fighter, and the sequel, which is just re-edited Lady Street Fighter. Okay? So he, this guy's a bizarre filmmaker. He had one that came out a while ago called Run, Coyote, Run, which I never get a chance to watch. But uh, Don't Go in the Woods, this is a bizarre film. Now, it definitely feels in the vein of like self-parodying. Like It knows how goofy and weird it is. And it's just a bizarre little film. We have a wild man in the woods who basically hacks and slash like 20 people. 90% of the people are just random people they show for four and a half seconds doing something stupid. And everything, every activity you could ever possibly do in the woods, somebody's doing it and then they die. So we can get all these weird, funny gags kind of deal. Now, is it up for, is it supposed to be a comedy? I, I do think it is self aware of how goofy and silly it is, but I don't know if this movie started off as something serious and then they were like, man, it the, the, sounds terrible. We got to ADR this. Let's just kind of like fuck it and just make it like goofy somewhat because the ADR, the dialogue, the acting is not great. It's just a little silly and inept and just bizarre. And I don't know if they decided to just kind of double down on the goofiness after that or, you know, it was always kind of realized to be stupid. And I don't mean that as an insult. I enjoy the movie. It is fun. Regardless, it never slows down. Now, like, I'm not a big fan of So Bad It's Good or On Purpose So Bad It's Good. And I don't know where this one falls. You know, I think that there's a genuine charm to it, um, which is rare because they're walking a line here. They're walking a real fine line where I don't know if they're making this stupid on purpose or it just kind of like is a movie that they put piece together and then they would try to fix it. And then it was like, fuck it. So it's kind of weird that walk that line kind of deal. And I do enjoy it. It's entertaining, and it doesn't really let up. You know, it's very low budget, and it has nice locations. The mountains and stuff look beautiful. The woods are pretty solid. But it kind of follows the story of, like, four, these four, a quartet of people camping and, like, all these other random people that are camping and a couple sheriffs that don't want to do their fucking job. That's it. The wild man kills everybody. He overacts. He's ridiculous. Literally, he kills like 20 people in here. And there's like somebody painting that he kills. And of course they leave it open, wide open for a sequel to Don't Go in the Woods Alone. But um, the, the funniest gag to me is definitely the wheelchair gag. Because we spend like 5 minutes with this character just for absolutely nothing. And then we just see the kill and you're just like, "Like, why are you doing this? Like, And at that point you're kind of like, they know what they're doing. Like, It's purposely kind of silly or goofy or just crazy. And also, the second kill a person from 1981 in a fucking wheelchair. I think Friday the 13th Part 2 has the poor guy in the wheelchair. And before that, we obviously had Franklin from... Um Texas Chainsaw. But that that goes way back to like what was the Hammer movie, Scream of Fear, with the poor girl's in a wheelchair. I mean, being in a fucking wheelchair during a horror movie scenario is terrifying. It sucks. And there's two from 1981 right off the top of my head here. So, But anyways, this is a fun movie. It looks as good as it can look. You know, it's a cheap movie. There's no subtitles. There's features on here. Commentary with director, then commentary with director Mary Gale Arts, lead actors, and others. Commentary with the Hysteria continues. Good podcast, by the way. And cast and crew feature at 60 minutes. We have autograph signing party feature at 30 minutes. TV promo compilation 15 trailer production still galleries press and art galleries script gallery also love the case and i believe this one made the section one or two video nasty list because it's so gory it's non-stop gore but if they would have watched it they would have been like forget it forget it it's too silly to even worry about but that is don't go in the woods alone okay the next two i don't have physical copies of in fact i don't know if they ever had physical copies of in the states but this one i believe is a hong kong film and it is love massacre now this caught my attention because the plot just sounded really interesting to me it's about it says uh, a character kind of loses their mind and goes on a kill spree after their sister dies that's kind of what we have here now uh basically we have this character this uh he's like a business guy i believe um that kind of sells factor i don't remember exactly what he does but he has his girlfriend in new york who is also from hong kong she's a model and they, they have a good relationship now she's friends with his brother I mean, his sister. And his sister has, suffers from mental illness. You know, she's not completely all there. She also has a, a boyfriend as well, and she's kind of slipping from reality. The, uh, the brother doesn't really like he's worried about her and all these kind of things but he doesn't really like her boyfriend and then one day tragedy kind of strikes and she ends up kind of committing suicide and this kind of like messes the brother up to ridiculous levels and then we kind of have these reveals about the brother's past about what he doesn't and you know Hong Kong his family and all these kind of things and who he really is you know and, and it's this kind of secret identity and after that, We learn that this guy, um, the apple must not fall far from the tree because her, her and her brother, you know, they both have these mental issues, but his are much more violent than his sister's. And he starts to snap, and as she starts to figure out that he's dangerous, she takes a step back, but he won't allow it. And there's a big kind of thing at the very end of this film that's very much like Richard Speck, or kind of like Violated Angels. Not as gratuitous in the sex, uh, sexual kind of department, but this character attacks the house. And it's a lot like a lot of the Hong Kong movies of the 80s that I've seen, where we have this kind of stalker kind of character, and like, like they attack and everything. What, there's just a bunch of them, you know, like I, it's, it's, night ripper, not right. Ripper high noon ripper. I can't, there's one that I watched for 85 and there's one, um, like I watched for like 80. There's just so many of these kind of kind of borderline crime horror films, but it, it picks up the pace in the last act. And I was kind of shocked at a couple moments, especially with a head in the door. I was like, We went there, didn't we? And I thought this movie was fairly well done. It's a pretty solid kind of horror thriller that has kind of, at the heart of it, just kind of a stalker kind of character, uh, you know, obsession, kind of lose their mind. I I did enjoy it. I like it. I think it's pretty solid. Um, I don't think it'll be close to my top 10 or top 25 of 1981, but I do think it's worth a look. Maybe cleaning this thing up would be interesting enough. I mean, there's a lot worse movies that are on Blu-ray and 4K than Love Massacre. I think it's pretty cool. Nice watch, though. So check it out. It's on YouTube. Now, the last one from 1981 is super interesting to me. So, this is a South Korean film, and it's called A Monstrous Corpse. Now, and I'd always heard that this was this is a remake of Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. I was like, okay, whatever. I've heard that kind of stuff before. That's just people being hyperbolic. Like it's a total ripoff. It's a total remake. No, this I think is an official remake of Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, aka Living Dead to Manchester Morgue. And I didn't expect that because that movie came out in '74. It's kind of like the Spanish answer to Night Living Dead at the time by Jorge Krau, Italian Sp- uh, Italian and Spanish co-production. Excellent movie. One of my favorites from '74, if not ever. Um, so essentially what we have here is the South Korean version. So we have this woman who's going to visit her sister, kind of in an isolated village. She hasn't seen her in five years. She's been married to her husband, who's like this over-controlling piece of crap. Um, and on the way there, she accidentally splashes this kind of guy in the wilderness and he's kind of hitchhiking. So she decides to give him a ride. They kind of hit it off in a weird way, much better than they did in Let's Save Corpses Lie. I think that Ray Lovelock and, uh, uh, was it Goldie really didn't get along at all. They seemed like they hated each other. This, they have a little better relationship. So, on uh, the way to try to find this village, he runs across this kind of machine, which is the same plot as Let's Save Corpses Lie, um, where this machine is uh, sends out ultrasonic so- like signals, uh, basically, to kill uh, Parasites. But uh, he's interested because he's uh, an environmentalist, and one of his friends is working there from college. So they start to have a conversation. Oh, very cool, very cool. And uh, while this is happening, um, our 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 actress, our lead, is attacked. Exactly like la- sleeping corpses lie about a man who's supposed is drunk who's supposedly drowned. And he's supposedly dead. So, like, this adds this weird kind of, like, element. It is essentially "Let Leslie corpses lie, and it hits almost all the same beats, except they change a lot of things. The The cop in this, instead of being Arthur Kennedy um, mean, Arthur Kennedy complete bigot, he's not as bad. He he is just a little bit better kind of looked at. At first, you think he's going to give him the horrible kind of angry, angry speech, and he does to a certain extent, but he, he's more redeemable. Um, as far as the gore is concerned. This is not as gory at all. It's not as bloody. It's not as explicit. Not even close. Not even by a country mile. It's, it's kind of it's very light on the gore and violence. Now, there is kind of... And, and you know, it's really shoddy on the effects, too. I'll, I'll say that. Like, the effects aren't great. The zombies look cool, but they're not excellent. Excellent. I mean, it even has the crypt scene and stuff like that, but instead of, like, ripping guts out and eating flash, there's more breaking of necks. But I will say the lighting's cool. The lighting is in that classic kind of South Korean, you know, like, suddenly in the dark. I think this is from 81 as well, but, like, kind of bizarre, kind of ultra-colored lighting, which... In the 80s, you know, South Korea kind of had more of, which you wouldn't expect when you watch their movies nowadays. You wouldn't expect that kind of those those blues and reds and stuff like that. You know, that's more Italian style from the time, and, and it kind of has that occasionally, especially in the crypt. But you know, it does almost beat by beat and does all these things except less explicit, and then the ending is pretty cool. I thought the ending was nice. I thought they were gonna kind of completely wuss out on uh, the ending, you know, kind of like how La- *Sleeping Corpses* Lie is really dark, really, really dark ending. Um, excellent ending, excellent movie. But this one, it's not as dark, but it is dark, and it does go some places there. So, like I did like seeing the weird differences. It was really fun comparing them, and it's really weird to live in a world where *Let Sleeping Corpses Lie* got remade in 1981 in South Korea. Think of that. Like how many movies ha- are out there that you don't know about, that you don't know much about, that haven't really been widely rediscovered? Millions, hundreds, not millions, but hundreds. I, I just the idea, I was like, this is so fucking cool that this exists. And I did enjoy it. I love comparing it. There's an HD print floating around. Now, it, it's not a great print. I don't know if it's completely uncut because a lot of those times they'll have these South Korean prints. and are like, we restored what we could. And it's missing like five, ten minutes, whatever. It's missing all the gore or sex or whatever. This one was it was about an hour and 26 27 minutes it's on YouTube as well and I enjoyed it I thought it was pretty cool pretty good stuff um just don't be surprised how close it falls let sleep courses lie but be you don't be surprised either that it, it skips on some of the gore and it changes the ending to a certain extent but good stuff entertaining stuff yeah good enjoyed it Last up is the Patreon pick, and this was picked by John Wilhelm, of course. And this is Death Promise from Vinegar Syndrome. What year was this made? This is this feels so, 77, uh, this feels so, like, independent, right? Um, I don't know if a studio had anything to do with this, but it's a lot of fun, okay? And I don't mean that as insult. People say, well, they tell you it's a lot of fun, that means your movie's bad. No, fuck off, man. Movies are supposed to be for entertainment. Smell your own f- I mean, I love all types of movies, art films, entertaining films, whatever. But a lot of fun does not an insult, I think, whoever started that was just wrong so uh death promise uh so basically what we have here is this is a nonsense movie it's in new york and the landlords are horrible landlords are horrible you know they do awful things to these these tenants of the apartment we have two guys that know martial arts one of the guys uh his father is like this ex-boxer is a tough guy has been dealing with these these landlords for a long time and he's sick of it so essentially these uh these these crooks or these goons keep like doing horrible things to the uh, the apartment buildings, you know, trying to start a fire, uh, turning off the water, turning off the electricity, letting rats loose, all this kind of shit. And these these guys are they're sick of it they're tired of it and they're going to revolt. Um. So essentially one day we kind of, we kind of learn that it's all done by like these four or five landlords that are, that are really awful and they're all like from different walks of life different styles. We have like a pimp we have like an Italian mobster we have like kind of like a rich kind of real estate guy and we have a judge and then we have the ringleader and he answers to somebody as well like a Mr. Kind of was that guy from uh, uh Inspector Gadget was just petting a cat or, or James Bond or something blow So like he was just like petting a cat or who pets the cat is it blowfield or is it whatever does it matter so so it's just really strange right um like that we have all these kind of different styles of guys and they're all like ridiculously over the top like stereotypical but fun um and eventually what a tragedy strikes and somebody dies and these guys aren't gonna you know they're not gonna just lay low so we have a training montage, which is in the vein of like a classic kung fu movie, right, from like the Shaw Brothers or Golden Harvest, where this guy learns this new technique and he's a super badass. And then he kind of goes back and he is told how to, like, he's given the information who these guys are. His buddy has already been casing around and knows all of them. So they start to pick all these guys off really ridiculous ways and just desserts, right? They're absolutely ridiculous. They have a lot of fights. Some of the fights aren't great or aren't convincing, but the end finale is really cool and really entertaining as well um it, it's a it's sloppy but it's fun does that make any sense the script is not it's not a work of art let's just put it that way um the bad guys are fun the revenge is fun the the martial arts is like kind of chintzy sometimes but it is still fun i did enjoy it for the most part the movie's a fun it's a fun little movie it's a, a little budget exploitation film it's a revenge picture be a good double feature with home bodies right from 19, is that 74 too i love home bodies but essentially, the special features here are um, 9,000 feet and 90 minutes interview with editor Jim uh, Marovic. And he talks about the movie. He talks about not being able to change anything about the movie. That the script, is super, the guy who wrote the script is super on it. And that's funny because you watch the movie and you're like, you really wanted to keep that, huh? You really needed that scene? Because, uh, like, I don't know if the script, the acting, or whatever. It's just it's not perfect. Let's just be honest. But, yeah. So, uh, Death Promise, I would recommend checking it out. Low budget, fun, goodness. It's It's pretty good. Let's do questions, comments, all that stuff. Kurt, I enjoyed Biozombie. I just watched The Cynic, The Rat, and The Fist. Thanks for reviewing last week. It was good. You're welcome. Hey, heck yeah, I was there running around on that beach. I live 30 minutes away. Nightmare Beach, great cheesy movie. I love hearing that. I reviewed Nightmare Beach last week. And he says thorough reviews as well. Thank you. Movie Junkie Reviews, Nightmare Beach, just did it for me. I enjoyed it. It's a lot of fun. Stephen Hyde, love your channel. You're cool. Thank you very much. Um, Ilk vomit. Is Jeremy on vacation from the channel? Been a while. I'll get him back. I'll get him back. He's busy. David Luton. I was uh, the patron who picked "Fear Eats the Soul," one of my favorite European films from the nineteen seventies. Fastbinder was incredibly prolific, and for me, this is his masterpiece. Glad you thought it was great stuff. Thanks. I, I forgot who did it. I appreciate it. it was a great movie. Nick Mua. Sad to hear you didn't enjoy Overlord all that much, but hey, you're you're uh, you are the zombie expert. You've seen every pre-mutation of the rotting undead. I expect I liked Overlord. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed it. It just, it should have been better. Um, I had similar feelings about You Should Have Left a Haunted House uh, flick featuring the ex- always excellent Kevin Bacon and Amanda Sidfried. It was kind of interesting, but nothing or shattering I've seen far too many cursed dwelling flicks, I think. I know the feeling. Ken Coakley, I agree with you about chimpanzees. They are cute, but can be vicious. I love animals, but know which ones are dangerous and which ones are tame. Me too. I don't. I don't mess with any wild animals, period. If it's there, I'm just like, leave them be. Uh, on the topic of a 1982 film *Poltergeist*, I think there's something to Spielberg doing most of the directing. The film feels akin to *ET* and *Close Encounters*. During this time, you knew you were watching a Spielberg film. Like I, my argument is, everything he produces feels like a Spielberg film, from *The Goonies* to um, even even like the the Indiana Jones movies he didn't um, direct. So it's just like everything he produced or had his hand in feels like a Spielberg film. *Gremlins* too. So like I just don't understand why Hooper is the one that didn't direct it, but everyone else directed their movies. Just doesn't make any sense. People be consistent. So this week's question of the week, top 10 favorite horror films from 1981. Please give me a top 10 list in order. That would be greatly appreciated. If you only have five, that's fine. I'm going to do the numbers and crunch the numbers and make sure that it's listed from 1981 on Internet Movie Database. That's how I go about it. But yeah, please do that. I'd be greatly appreciated. Uh, And I'll, I'll make a list and let you guys know next week because I'm diving into 1981. So just give me your top 10 favorite 1981 horror films. Let's hop into the update. All right, let's hop into this update. First up is 964 Pinocchio, aka Scream of the Banshee. Or, what is it? It's Banshee. It's been a long time since I watched this one. I watched it for '91. This is from Media Blasters. This movie's bonkers. This is a strange, like, cyberpunk Japanese movie. Kind of like gross out sometimes. First time on Blu ray from a new 4K scan of the original 60mm camera negatives. That's awesome. Yeah. I has a short film on there, Caterpillar. It's a weird movie. If you guys like weird Japanese films, it's a must. Check it out. Really weird. Then we have another kind of strange Japanese film, uh, Hair Extensions, which I've never seen. This is a Sono film. I watched a lot of his films, and they are really bizarre and really excellent. This one is a Blu-ray as well. Look forward to watching this, upgrading my DVD. Never even watched the Blu-ray. This is a, a rare short film. From the director, usually his movies run very long. I think this one is a, a normal runtime, if I'm not mistaken. This and Tag, I think, have like a normal runtime. The other ones are usually super long—108 minutes, not super long for him. Then we got some bizarre ones. I ordered from this company. What is it? Oblivion. Um, I ordered from Diabolic, and this is Note Profondo of Profonda, and this is from 91, if I'm not mistaken, and I remember seeing this movie when I did my 91 or 94 master list. I can't remember what year, and I was like, I can't find a good quality copy of that, I, I mean, I found a rip, but it looked like shit, this is on Blu-ray right now, that's crazy, and it, it's uh, region free, and it has subtitles, so I missed their first release, Evil Clutch, I wanted that one, but uh, I missed it, I probably never get it, like to still get it, but hey on this one. Note Profunda. I'll probably have to watch this ASAP. Fabio Um uh, uh, Yeah. Never. Don't know it. And then from the same director by Oblivion Films. This is La Atrala Dimension. And uh, yeah. So this is a, an anthology by this director. Made in the 90s as well. If I'm not mistaken. So like yeah. Two movies from this guy. I hope, I hope it's pretty good. Uh, yeah. Bizarre. 1992. So. Looks super weird. And then the last from Oblivion is Fatal Frames, which I've heard about for years. It's supposed to be super long. It's like one of Donald Pleasant's last movies. Um, it's supposed to be a mess, right? It's supposed to be a mess. It's got a crazy cast. David Warbeck, Alda Valley, you know, uh, <laughs> Linnea Quigley, Angus Scrim, Donald Pleasant. So what is going on? Uh yeah, this movie's supposed to be really weird. Um David Warbeck don't look too too solid in that movie either, man. It might be one of his last films and uh Donald Pleasant's last films. But anyways, Fatal Frames. Look forward to finally checking that bad boy out. And last but certainly not least, we have the Magic Myth and Mutilation box set the micro budget cinema of Michael J. Murphy, nineteen sixty seven to twenty fifteen. When anybody's gonna put out these massive sets as an indicator these massive sets of, like, regional or independent filmmakers and put, like, everything in there. It's, like, it's just, like, drugs for me. It's, like, I had to have the Andy Milligan, the Herschel Gordon-Lewis, the, the, um, uh, the, geez, the, what, uh, the Al Adamson. I had to have them all. Bill Rubin, William Graffay. So, like, I don't even want to name all the movies in this set because it's everything. You'll have to look it up. It's it's a lot of fucking movies, all right? Oh, I'm bumping the camera here. But this thing is massive, right? Here's all the movies right here, uh, if you wanted to read them. Because, yeah. I see Bloodstream and it's awful. But hey, I'm willing to give the rest of them a shot. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Bloodstream's 85. It was one of the worst movies I saw from 85. But hey, look at this thing. Price of admission is worth it for this thing on the cover. Looks like that thing from Beetlejuice that tries to marry Lydia and... uh, and Beetlejuice at the end. But, anyways, we're gonna hop back to the video, guys. Alright, guys, thank you very much for watching, and as always, have a good one. Bing.